All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Welcome, everybody, um, to our packed event. Um, I'm Myra Kwaja. I'm the Director of Public Strategy at the Invisible Institute, and I had the honor of working as the Managing Editor of the Chicago Police Torture Archive. Um, I'm going to give you a very brief walkthrough of what you can access in this site, um, but obviously there's a lot more than what we can go through today, and so reach out at any time. We would love to talk with you if you want to talk about what you can access and how you can use it. Um, the first thing I'll say is this site would not have been possible without the good people at the Posen Center and the People's Law Office. Um, in 2017, Flint Taylor of the People's Law Office reached out to Susan Zesch um, asking for the Posen Center to, to take on this archive. And um, Susan asked us to make these documents more accessible, uh, digitize, scan them, but also made a useful tool for educators, students, researchers, survivors, attorneys, etc. And so um, we have a history section that has a very detailed timeline of the many players in this fight for justice. We also have um, journalism history from John Conroy, um, linking to his uh, famous pieces, House of Screams in the Chicago Reader, legal history and activism history, written substantially by Joey Mogul of the People's Law Office and as, and as a co-founder of the Chicago Torture Justice Memorials. And we really are excited to see the ways that students and researchers are able to make use of this thorough history um, that tries its best to, to include the many different perspectives, the people across many sectors of society who work together for, for this fight. The centerpiece of the site are the profiles, the survivor profiles. So it's not just the legal documents. Um, Every survivor that we interviewed has um, multimedia features in their profile. We tried our best to link to um, documents in the People's Law Office archive. And um, we do know that there's a lot more that we have to do. We have 36 profiles, but we know that more than 100 people were, were tortured by the Midnight Crew. So if you have material, if you want your story to be included, you can reach out to us and we will pair you with um, an editor to make sure that we incorporate your story. Again, the, the People's Law Office archive um, is very substantial um, and includes testimonies, torture findings, media articles that PLO collected, um, and letters from anonymous police sources. It takes a lot of time to go through it, and so um, I'm hopeful that educators in the audience can make use of the primary source documentation that we have. And lastly, our resources section um, is an attempt, an ongoing attempt to incorporate um, the many different organizations and people who work within this ecosystem of fighting for torture justice. So um, in addition to different curricula that have been built over the years, not just the, the final Chicago Public Schools curriculum that is now required in eighth and 10th grade, um, we are also building out our police data section of this site, which makes use of the Citizens Police Data Project at the Invisible Institute. 
which is our ongoing project of collecting police officer disciplinary histories and making them accessible and useful by attorneys, uh, for attorneys, but also for people who have experienced police abuse. Um, I'm excited to see that there are many attorneys on the call. And so I hope we can talk together about the ways that um, our collection of documents can be useful in the cases that you are fighting. Um, yeah, so that is that is my brief overview. I will close my portion by playing you a short clip from an incarcerated survivor, Stanley Howard, um, who talked on the phone recently with Mark Clements, a friend and fellow survivor who you'll hear from today. Um, and Mark asked him to record something to share at this launch, launch event. My name is Stanley Howard. I'm at Dixon Correctional Center. I've been incarcerated for over 37 years now. And I would like to make a statement concerning the archives. After having the city of Chicago and the Cook County State Attorney's Office lie and deny about the very existence of the systematic pattern and practice of torture and abuse that occurred, the Chicago Police Torture Archives is not only a place where it reveals the lies and denials, but it also establishes a centralized place where the world can view the history of this racist atrocity. The Chicago Police Torture Scandal, one of the largest police corruption scandals in American history, is yet another example of how black folks are treated in America, especially by the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, the Chicago Police Torture Archives is incomplete because there are still many of us on this side of the wall screaming for help. I appreciate all that has been done on our behalf from our family members, friends, lawyers, and activists. But I also want to remind the world that if this history is not viewed and acknowledged, this history can continue to occur again and again and again. I'll hand it back over to Damon. Thank you so much, Myra, for, for all the work that you do, as well as that, that run through. Uh, and want to uplift um, Stanley's voice as we go into a moment of call to action. Uh, you know, I now work with the Chicago Torture Justice Center, which is a great honor. Uh, but for many years, I've been participating and hosting and showing up and celebrating um, these, these events of this historic work that folks have been doing to address a global injustice. And one thing I want to push now, uh, being a little bit more on the inside, is that we need to understand that the time for celebration is over and there's a lot of work that we still have to do um, and all has not been repaired by far. Um, and Stanley's point is, is, is primary, that we still have way too many of our, of our people behind bars. So first, we need to support all action to free them all, including um, work around Stanley Howard, Gerald Reed, Timon Russell, and the Hernandez brothers. Um, so whether that is organizing to put pressure on our governor, our state's attorney, uh, or other political officials, uh, we have to continue to build our movement. Uh, also an important, important call to action, uh, particularly because the reparations ordinance was, did come at such a critical political moment uh, where the previous administration used this to get good credit. We need to note um, that six years later, the Chicago Torture Justice Memorial has still not been funded, um, and there are commitments that the city has made that are not being upheld. Um, so our mayor and city hall 
um, has a responsibility because um, not only have all not been repaired, uh, but the work of this memorial so that we continue to heal, continue to build, learn and organize is something that we need to take very seriously, uh, particularly in this time where we are rising against the fight against white supremacy and fascism, uh, which is a part of this legacy of state violence and torture. Um, and lastly, um, for folks who want to support immediately, um, the Chicago Torture Justice Center also has a survivor relief fund that was launched um, during COVID that can help uh, support with immediate needs uh, for survivors for day-to-day -day life or other expenses. Um, and this is really, really important because what I want folks to know is that these folks are brilliant, are, are, are powerful, are resilient, uh, but they also are under a lot of pressure and our folks are struggling. So we need to really show up uh, even more than we've been doing over these years and support our survivors because they are the leaders of our movement. We would not be able to talk about abolition or police violence or any of this systemic injustice if it wasn't for some of these men and women who were so brave, um, the mothers and the family. So we need to continue to show up. Uh, and with that, speaking of bravery and showing up, uh, we're going to hear some brief survivor statements. Um, and I'm going to pass it um, to a man who has used his voice for many, many years now um, and has been, been a leader in this movement and pushes me to show up uh, with more consistency and, and more, more fire. Everybody, please, please, please make some noise at your crib for the one and only Mark Clemens. Yay! I think that this is an honor and it's a honor for all torture survivors to at least uh, raise your hands. You can physically raise them if you don't see the hand sign. And I'm going to start it off. And uh, my name is Mark Clements. I was incarcerated from 1981 until 2009. 28 years. Uh, may the next survivor identify themselves. Mustafa Bemil. I was incarcerated from 1976 until 19, let's see now, 2018. My name is Anthony Holmes. I'm a survivor. I was confined and stayed busy. I let all the, all the joints. One of the first of the uh, various torture victims and just so you know i did 30 some odd years and here i am speak the truth today thank you i say i say thank you for, for all your work anthony uh for, for for folks who are hopping on and maybe having texts or calling in uh we're trying to roll through and hear from as many of the survivors we have on the line um and so if you are familiar with the reaction button please feel free to raise a hand or if you see us uh, put a hand up or, or, or throw yourself in the chat. I'm going to throw it to Greg. Yeah. Hey, everybody. All the torture survivors. This is Gregory Banks. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. I, you know, I was in, uh, incarcerated from 1983 to 1990. I was the first one to, to uh, get my case overturned and come home. Uh, and that was... I think that was the beginning of getting the letting the ball roll, starting the ball to roll, and and uh, and what I said while I was incarcerated, I said that if I ever get out, that I would not stop. Uh, I wouldn't stop. I was gonna. I tried to. I tried to hide a little bit, but I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life, man. Because this is what I was born to do. 
And I, I could testify to your commitment, Greg. Greg shows up with such a consistent spirit. I'm going to pass to James Gibson we got. Welcome, everybody. I hope everybody is safe. I'm James Gibson. Uh, um, first, The first case out of the torture cases that uh, the, court, the Supreme Court has ever ruled torture, elaborated, proven since the bodice was a slave. I stand on the backbone of all those who came before me. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I didn't take the five deals that they offered me. Um, did, um, I was arrested, falsely in prison, illicit prosecution, fraud, frame, and cover up in 1989. And uh, I just since been released in 2019, exonerated, and given my certificate of innocence and all my rights. So I'm here today, man, uh, uh, to share with my brothers that I came before and after, and uh, brothers like Mark and Men and Holmes and all the banks and all the rest of the brothers. And I'm standing on the backbones of all the ones we lost. I'm saying like Graylin Johnson, Jesse has just passed away. And all these other brothers still locked up. So we had to bring this pain. We ain't taking no deals. We ain't going no choke cuts. I think we're going we gonna to pass to Levert, Thomas, Levert Jones. I'm sorry. Thank you, Mr. Gibson. <laughs> hey, hey, how you guys doing, man? It's good to be here. Torture survivor from uh, 1984 to 2003. I don't have much to say. I think everybody just summed it up, you know, what's going on. But uh, glad to be a part, I mean, of the situation. It's a uh, torture center. Glad that we advocate, man, for uh, police brutality and justice on all fronts. So it's a blessing to be here speaking as uh, right now this moment, you know. Love having you here. Uh, Sean, I'm going to pass it back to you. I, I don't know if we got you this time. Okay, okay. Blessings to all, man. Uh, once again, man, I'm Sean Tyler. 25 years I served, wrongfully convicted, tortured. Survivor, not a victim. And uh, I'm just glad to be here, man. I'm also good that, uh, you know, everybody coming together, you know, to form this, uh, 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 this strong, this strong unity, this bond against uh, uh, further people who uh, mostly can't speak for themselves. Guys who are just like us, who are still on the inside, who are trying to get someone to hear them. Guys who are screaming, man, you know, so aside from representing ourselves, you know, we all represent them, man, because those are the guys, you know, who are, uh, you know, they trying, you know, and it's a lot of, it's a lot of us still trying, man, you know, and if can't nobody relate to them, we can, man, because we once was them, you know, so the fight ain't going to stop, man. The only thing we're trying to do is get them guys on this side and hopefully, man, uh, uh, get them to feel the same thing that we feel, you know, to be with their family, to be with, you know, with the community in which they've, uh, 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 managed to grow up with inside of them, you know, because a lot of us did grow up in there, you know, aside from being out here, which is a lovely thing, no one seems to know us but us, you know, as oddly and strange as that seems, man, but, you know, we seem to be sometimes unrelatable. So with that being said, man, I'm glad that, uh, that this is coming together, you know, because we all have to represent one another, man. We all have to make it about us. And I mean, just all of us, you know, no, no overs, no unders, no, you know, no, it's us, man. If it happened, it happened, you know, and, and allow all of us to fight to fix it, you know, regardless if it's the, uh, uh, the cats from the old days or those of us from the young days, you know, wrong is wrong, you know, it ain't no right way to do it. So with that being said, man, let's fight for us and let's try to help freedom guys who can't fight for themselves. Blessings. Much love, free, free, freedom all. Um, 
I, I, I heard that she she was in class. Uh, so, but I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to call on her. We got Latanya Jennifer Sublet. Hey y'all, um, hey. I am in class. Hey. I'm so sorry, I'm I'm doing double time here. But my name is Latanya Jennifer Sublet, one of the only women to come forward um, to be the face of a female torture survivor. I stand in the front always as the face for all the other women who have been told, like I have been told, we never heard of you. We didn't know that they were women. I am her and I represent many and I know that I do, but I am a torture survivor. Area two, police station, 1990, 1991. I did 21 years in prison. I am her and I represent many women. We exist, look for us. Thank you. All right, thank you, thank. Latanya. Thank you for jumping in. I'm so glad you're here. Um, so much love. I don't. We don't want to miss anybody, uh, but I don't see any other names or anybody else in the chat. Um, so, and if if we're not missing anybody, I just want to say to all the survivors that are here, we honor you. We love you. Uh, thank you for your continued commitment to to justice. Um, and just even that brief iteration of those folks that we saw together, um, the resilience that we saw, the naming of solidarity, um, also hearing that, you know, I'm 28 years old. And so those years and those numbers of entire lifetimes that were taken away from people, uh, many of which were, were teenagers and children themselves, um, when the most horrible thing in the world happened to them. Uh, and so to see the commitment and the resilience and the connection uh, has been a level of beauty that that is kind of hard to articulate. I'm trying to put some big words to it, y'all, uh, in this little Zoom event, but it's really, you know, we honor you, we thank you, um, and, and thank you for your work, and thank you for your resilience. Mark, you want to say something in closing before we, we pass it on? Well, if you don't say nothing, I'm, I want to introduce myself, Damon. Oh, wait, who we got? It's Reg, man. Oh, Reg, please, yeah. please speak real quick. I'm so sorry. I didn't know you was there. No, it's all right, brother. Uh, peace, peace, peace be upon everyone that's here, man. Uh, my name is Reginald Henderson. I'm also a torture survivor. I'm the older brother of Sean Tyler. When they couldn't uh, find or locate my brother, they came and got me and tortured me and put me on the case. I was locked up at 18 and uh, I've been released now for nine months. I did 26 and a half years for a crime I had absolutely nothing to do with. And uh, I really wanna mimic what, what all the brothers saying, uh, you know, you know, it's rough, man. And, and for so many years to, 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 to have your lips pinched where can't nobody uh, hear you, you know what I mean? And to now to be able to come out and come to the center and sit before so many. So uh, Satan, I'm still that guy that squatted you, uh, spotted you with the 315. Greg, I'm still a guy that met you on the yard when we tried to, you know, growing up. So I just want the guys to know that we here, man. I'm, it's good to see y'all faces. It's good to, you know, uh, get the support uh, with the sisters. You know what I mean? Man, we appreciate y'all, man. I acknowledge you. I recognize you. You know what I mean? Aisling and everybody that's uh, supporting us and has continued to support us, we thank you. I just, uh, I'm, I am appreciative to be on this side and just being able to speak, man, because for so many years, man, I've written, I've wrote uh, so many people, man, just trying to get my voice heard. But to now, just to hear the echo from the phone of you guys listening is appreciative, man. It's so much of a blessing. So thank you guys, man, for this opportunity. 
Uh, I look forward to working with everyone. You know, God bless, man, and God speed. Let's get it going. I'm really put foot to ass, man, because it's time. Uh, it's time, man. You know, we 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 get this ball rolling, man. You know, gonna get to work. Thank you. Uh, Absolutely. And I, John and, and, yep. And and uh, we got we're gonna hear from him later, but we also got Mr. Kilroy Watkins, uh, a dynamic part of our community. Hey. Kilroy, you there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Hey, thank you. Um, Kilroy Watkins, uh, FD, uh, a Chicago torch survivor, been incarcerated from 1992 to 2019. And I just like to extend this moment to ask everyone to remember the hard work, sweat, and tears of the mothers and the families who sacrificed uh, fighting and paving the road to our freedom because as Flint and Haas reminded us that the court was not willing to do anything for us and it was all power to the people. And we knew that the people led to this day to be a reality for us. And it's gonna be the people who are gonna be uh, a reality to the freedom to the other torch survivors that remain in jail. Uh, so thank you. Thank you, Kilroy. And then I think we got Ronald here. Is Ronald Kitchen with us? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. My name is Ronald Kitchen. I did 21, 13 on death row, eight in population. Like everybody's saying, it was hell in there, you know, but the, like we said, we the fight moves on. Thank you so much. And for folks who 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 are not seeing the chat, um, one, we encourage folks to continue to build community, uh, but, but I'm seeing so much love and so much support. Uh, so for the survivors that are missing the chat, please, please um, know that, that people are hearing you and receiving you and your work is appreciated. Um, all right. So we are gonna move right along. I'm glad we ran over in that section because that's what we needed to hear. And I wanna pass it over um, to start to get a little bit of more of the legal perspective um, and how we can understand uh, this archive a little bit with more detail. We're gonna invite from the People's Law Office uh, an amazing lawyer and fighter for, for our work and for justice uh, who has been showing up for years now. Uh, please, please welcome Joey Mogul. And then we also have leaders of our survivor movement uh, who have now for, for, for a, over a decade, uh, for decades been advocating uh, for this work and for this repair. Please applaud Mr. Anthony Holmes and Gregory Banks. I'm gonna pass to y'all. Damon, thank you so much for that warm welcome. Good evening, everybody. Uh, it is such an honor to be here um, and to be celebrating this really exciting event and this momentous occasion of getting this legal archive up and accessible to everyone who has access to the internet. Um, so as, as Myra said, this started, a lot of the archive includes various legal documents that have been collected over decades from representation the People's Law Office has done on behalf of many of the Burge torture survivors and other police torture survivors as well. People who were tortured by Burge's henchmen, but maybe not under Burge's command. And, um, you know, what's been so difficult often as uh, being lawyers and legal workers is that we get access to all this information and we get all these documents, right? And we get all this evidence, we get all this proof, but it's really difficult. I hate blacks. I hate and, um, it's, it's, and I can't tell you how many times a week we get requests from other lawyers, from 
academics, from um, community members, from mothers, you know, asking, do you have information on Burge? Do you have information on, um, you know, O'Brien or Halloran or other of these detectives who worked under his command so that they can use it to make their arguments in their cases, or they can use it to educate people. And it, it's, it's an incredible amount of work to try to share this information. And so the fact that, you know, this information was collected and, and, and organized, and, and, you know, I want to give a shout out to Flint Taylor, who did a lot of the organization of this work, and then handing it over to Susan Zash, who then worked with the material at the Posen Center, and then giving it to Invisible Institute, and really just a hats off to Myra and the Invisible Institute for not only helping to organize this information, but to make it accessible, make it so that everyone has access to it. It really, um, it, it really is going to make a difference. I mean, this is a people's story and it's a people's narrative about, about this racially motivated um, pattern and practice of torture that decimated people's lives and that is continuing to decimate people's lives. And so, you know, um, education is power, right? Knowledge is power. And I'm, I'm, I'm just glad that this archive um, exists and is now readily accessible so that everyone can get access to this information and use it to free themselves, to free others, and to seek more justice. Um, but with that, I wanted to, you know, introduce and, and, and get a few words from both Anthony and Greg, um, both of whom are Burge torture survivors, both of whom have been fighting for justice in the streets as well as in the courtrooms for decades, both, all, both of whom have given of themselves courageously and um, to testify on behalf of others, to tell their story about what occurred to them in hopes of getting other people freed from prison or getting justice. So let me start with you, Anthony. Um, you were one of the first people who was tortured in May of 1973, right? Yes. And I'm gonna, I don't wanna make you relive what you experienced, but you, you know, experienced some very heinous torture, right? You were suffocated with a plastic bag, you were electrically shocked by Burge directly, right? With his electric yes. shock box. When you, before you had experienced this torture, had you ever heard of anyone experiencing those kind, that kind of treatment in a police station before? No, I know most time you go to the police station, you just get beat up, but that's about it. But that was the first time I ever experienced that. And, and it shocked me because of the fact that I, I couldn't believe it was happening. I didn't have no control over it. He, he did what he wanted to do. Right. So when you you then came forward and you told people, right? You told your 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 aunt. You, you yep. told you you told your your wife. You um, told your lawyers, right? And then you you're um, you were tortured into giving a confession. That confession was used against you, right? Yes. Yeah. And then what happened in the court proceedings? Well, with the court, they used a statement against me, and they, they didn't, when I tried to tell them, you know, that what had, uh, took place, they wouldn't listen. They just disregard what I had to say. And ended up getting sent to penitentiary for 20, uh, uh, getting 20 to 75 years. And I did 30 some odd years in the penitentiary and came home in 04. And um, how did it feel? I mean, you know, this confession was used against you, you know, even though you had told people you were tortured and when you were convicted, how did that make you feel? It made me feel, you know, I, I, I couldn't give up. Uh, I had lost hope because I see it right then when nobody going to help me. 
So I had to do one of two things, either bug out in the penitentiary or get myself together and, and fight. And that's what I did. I fought and, and eventually I was able, you know, every time I went to the pro board, they denied me. I went to the pro board about 15 times and got denied, you know, until until the case broke with the Wilson brothers. It wasn't, you know, when nobody still when we leave them. And then when the case broke with the Wilson brothers, that's what helped everybody else out. It opened, it was a, it was a, uh, a domino effect. And it showed that, you know, that this, these atrocities that they was doing to us kept on happening. And it was a true fact that what we started, what they started hearing, they started believing then. If it don't be for the people office and everybody else that was you know, fighting for us, we wouldn't be here now. So, you know, we're definitely grateful for that. Okay, so and then, you know, you get out in 2004 and you give a deposition in, um, in, in a series of cases on behalf of other torture survivors, Madison Hobley, Aaron Patterson, Leroy Orange, and Stanley Howard's yes. civil rights case, right? Yes. In that deposition, I then had an opportunity to go and present it to the United Nations uh, uh, Human Rights Committee, and they saw your testimony and they believed you, right? They now did. part of the reparation struggle. <laughs> and you talked to countless numbers of, of students, of organizers, to family members, to people, and you're constantly educating people about what, what occurred to both you and at Area 2, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, now you're included in this torture archive, right? You, yes, what your experiences are now documented for the world to see, and the world now has access for everyone to know what you lived through, what you survived, and how you have mm -hmm. fought back, and you have, and you are continuing to fight back. What does being included in this archive mean to you? It's everything because it shows it shows our innocence and what was did to us, and that and that in itself speaks a whole lot because it, well, you know all the years anybody believe me or anybody else that for that matter, and then when it all started coming to come, coming together, that's where we're at now. We're trying to, you know, they still ain't, ain't took care of the, uh, the moral force, but the bottom line is this here. Now we can stand tall and say, y'all did this, and they they call, they, they apologize and give and give us a little money and stuff, but that's that's going that's going never replace what they took from us. But the fact of it is, is that we can tell our story. Our story is being told, and through everybody that helped us and, and went along with us and did the, you know did the march and whatever. It took to get us where we at now. I pray that we keep on going and we finally get the memorial built, and that's gonna say it all with these archives. And that's how I see it. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And with that, I mean, I hope people can support Chicago Torture Justice Memorials. We are working hand in hand with the Chicago Torture Justice Center to get this memorial built. I hope maybe someone can drop in the chat. We have a petition we'd love people to sign. And we'd love to raise some money um, um, because we need to get this memorial built. In addition to the Invisible Institute's archive, we need to inscribe this racist history into Chicago, this city of Chicago's landscape so that we never forget it and we constantly learn from it. Anthony, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And thank you for sharing and doing all that you do. Um, you. Let's give it up for Anthony. Hey. I'd love to now, Greg, ask you just a few questions as well. Um, Greg, can you tell us when you were tortured at Area 2? In 1983, October 28, 1983, Area 2 violent crime. And you were tortured by two of, um, as, and you'll see this in the archive, 
by Peter Dignan and John Byrne, who were known by Deep Badge, who sent an anonymous letter in by those two as known were known as quote unquote Burgess ass kickers, right? Yes, yes. And I, you know, and I, I what, what I was going to say is that I said that I would never forget Peter Dignan ever, never, ever, because he said, when he said that we have something special for niggas, that I said I would never forget him, ever. Wow, that's intense. And so they suffocated you with a plastic bag and they beat you about your body until you confessed, right? Yes. And you confessed to a crime you didn't do or and um, in the way they said you did it. And, right. uh, and in your case, um, had before you went to Area 2, had you heard of anyone being treated that way? No, never. Okay. And you then brought a motion to suppress, right? Where you essentially said, argued in court, hey, I was, phys- I was tortured. I was physically coerced. You can't use this confession against me, right? Right. And you testified at that proceeding, right? Yes. And then what happened? They denied it. How'd that make you feel? Uh, that, that I wasn't going to get justice in the criminal courts. I mean, in the criminal courts, there was no justice for me. And so then you appealed your 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 conviction, right? And you challenged yes. your confession. And what happened on appeal? They threw out everything. Everything was thrown out. And and what was one of the reasons they threw it out? Do you remember? Did they cite any other cases at that point? Yeah. Well, uh, Lee Holmes, uh, and I think uh, uh, the let me let me remember. Uh, Lee Holmes, Lee Holmes, and then the Wilson brothers. Right. And so the fact that the court could say, oh, wow, this not only happened to you, but this happened to Lee Holmes, this happened to Andrew Wilson, that we think that this happened to you, Greg, and therefore they were able to grant you, they, they threw out your confession and your conviction was vacated, right? Absolutely. But how much time did you do before you got released from prison? Seven. Yeah. And um, so it was, you know, it, Greg, your, your case is a, a really monumental case, at least in the legal field, right? It was one of the doors opening to getting what we would call this pattern practice evidence in, in order to um, pr- corroborate other people's allegations of torture, right? Yes, um, it was. Now, Greg, you've testified on behalf of many other individuals in both their civil rights cases and their post-conviction proceedings, right? Yes, I have. Okay. I mean, both of you testified at Burgess' trial, his prosecution. Yes. You testified in Alonzo Smith's case. You testified yes. in Harold Cannon's case. Yes. Um, why do you keep coming forward and testifying on behalf of others? Because it's my duty. It is what... You know, people help me get out, so I have to. I have to. Re, I have to do the same thing for them, and I will continue to do the same thing. I will never stop. If they need my help, I'm going to help them. And what does it mean to you to be included? Your experiences to be included in this archive. The archives will memorialize us, uh, the, all the torture survivors, forever. See, we'll never be forgotten. That's something that we will never be. People will always know the history 
of its survivors, and they will always know that this was part of Chicago's history. Thank you. Thank I want to, you know, close it out. We're right on time. Um, I really want to thank both of you, Anthony and Greg, for not only being here tonight and sharing some of your experiences with us, but all of your courageous work. You, you constantly come forward tirelessly, often at to your own expense. It's very difficult to come forward and always talk about how you were tortured and how this affected you. But you always show up. You always fight on behalf of others. Um, and you are still fighting on behalf of others. I am so grateful to be in community with you, to be um, organizing with you. And I'm so grateful to so many people on this call for all the amazing work we are doing together to continue to seek justice. I believe that this archive is gonna be such an instrumental tool that we all can use to continue to fight for the brothers and sisters who remain behind bars and that we can all learn to educate ourselves about who did what, when, why, and how, and we can work to free them all. Um, thank you uh, to Chicago Torture Justice Center, CT Chicago Torture Justice Morals, and most importantly to the Invisible Institute for all of your incredible work and in making this archive become a dream to a reality. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joey. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Greg. And Greg, you, it's getting emotional. Like, Greg, you put it perfectly, right? And, and I can speak for at least 170 odd folks that, that are on this Zoom call, and I'm sure folks watching on Facebook, um, particularly in Chicago, but beyond, you and, and, and your people in this story will never be forgotten. The impact that you have had on us um, and the, the bravery y'all have had in continuously sharing your story and reliving your trauma for your community, for your city, for your society. Um, it's, it's a debt that can never be repaid to you. Um, there, there is no amount uh, that can repair all that you have given and all that you have endured for our people. So thank you so much, Greg and Anthony. And thank you, Joey, for, for your work and, and orchestrating that conversation. We appreciate y'all. Um, and, and we're going to keep on going. Um, and again, you know, we are celebrating, but, but I want this as you are, are feeling this viscerally and emotionally, um, I want this to activate you um, and, to, and to anger you um, because this is one of the, the most violent histories um, in American society. Um, and so when we're talking about the carceral system, when we got these new words, even though they ain't new, about abolition of, of prisons and police, uh, we have to understand that this is the work that made it possible. It is the survivors of carceral violence that makes the resistance against the carceral system uh, a reality or a possibility. And there, there is few uh, local legacies as important as the legacy of the death row 10 and the work that, that led to abolishing um, state executions as, as they were. Um, in Illinois. So I want to invite to the stage, you see their beautiful faces, Alice Kim of the Posen Center for Human Rights and also from Chicago Torture Justice Center and many other spaces, Kilroy Watkins, as well as Mr. Ronald Kitchen. Appreciate y'all. Y'all take it away. Thanks so much, Damon. And thanks to Myra and also to Joey and Greg and Anthony and everyone who helped to put this event together today. Um, I'm so appreciative and grateful to the Invisible Institute for making this archive a reality. I especially appreciate that the architecture of the site centers the survivors themselves. Um, 
you know, as soon as you get onto the homepage of the site, um, you see the exquisite photographs of survivors um, gracing um, the homepage for all to see. You know, the archive really puts their stories, their lived experiences, their knowledge front and center. Um, and the legal documents, I know that they are going to be incredibly useful um, to all who want to learn more about um, these cases, um, but the archive isn't limited to legal documents. Um, it also um, houses, contains, collects um, ephemera from every phase um, of this struggle um, uh, for justice in the Burge torture cases. And um, I'm really honored to have space in the program this evening to be in conversation with Ronnie Kitchen and Kilroy Watkins. I've known Ronnie since the late 1990s. I first met Ronnie uh, in the visiting room of Pontiac Prison um, when I was an organizer with the campaign to end the death penalty. Uh, he, um, uh, his mom and I went out to, to visit um, Ronald Kitchen and also Stanley Howard, who we heard from earlier today. Um, Pontiac was one of two prisons in the state of Illinois where death row prisoners were housed. Um, at that time, we could not have predicted that what would unfold in Illinois, um, that Illinois would become ground zero in the fight to abolish the death penalty in the U.S., that Ronnie and his comrades on death, on death row who had the foresight and audacity to form the Death Row 10, that they, along with their mothers, would play a pivotal role, not only in saving their own lives, um, but bringing the machinery of death to an, an end um, in our state. And then I met Kilroy Watkins much more recently, um, but I knew his mom, Mildred Henry. Um, Mildred Henry, Henry fought alongside Luva Bell, Ronnie's mother, and the Death Row 10 moms. Um, when I met Kilroy, it was a short month after he got out. Um, it was actually um, at the CTJM exhibit, um, still here. Um, and uh, Kilroy hit the pavement running. <laughs> he was known as the professor on the inside. And within months of his release, Kilroy was leading discussions at St. Leonard's. Um, he was a keynote speaker at a bill signing with Governor Pritzker and the Lieutenant Governor. And he became a regular speaker to classes um, at, the, at the University um, of Chicago. So we're going to say, share a few thoughts about the legacy of the Death Row 10. Um, and I, I just wanna say a word about the beginnings of the Death Row 10. Um, it was actually from Stanley Howard, um, who is a co-founder of the Death Row 10 that I learned um, that the formation of the Death Row 10 was actually an unintended consequence of Clinton's crime bill in 1994. So as he explained to me, um, Pell grants were discontinued uh, because of Clinton's crime bill. And Stanley had been learning the law along with others um, who were on death row um, with, through law classes that were funded by Pell grants. And when Pell grants were discontinued, by that time, Stanley says he had fallen in love with the law, right? And so what he decided to do was he got permission to organize um, law classes um, from the assistant warden at the time. And it was during these law classes that actually, and Ronnie describes this vividly in his book, <laughs> that during these um, law classes, the death row 10 they realized they had all been tortured by the same group of white um, police detectives, um, John Burge's torturing. And 
there you saw the birth um, of the death, death row 10. Um, so it's really quite an amazing story um, to hear how law classes, you know, and law classes, as Kilroy um, on a Zoom earlier said today, it's law classes, religious classes, these are the spaces where people um, use to organize. Um, and that is exactly um, what the death um, row 10 did. Um, so I wanted to ask um, you, Ronnie, um, first, to take some time to take a moment to actually talk about the kind of um, organizing that you and the other members of the Death Row 10 did um, when you were on death row, what it was like. I know that when I heard Stanley's voice tonight, it was chilling. Um, it reminded me, it was so reminiscent of the live from death row events um, that we held. Back then, there wasn't the same kind of technology <laughs> that we have today. So it was quite a feat to get those live from death row events organized. Um, you talk, you write about um, the live from death row events in your book, but can you say a word about the how you organized on the inside? Hey, everybody. I was, I was just sitting back looking at the pictures that that you just put up and my heart and I, and I'm, and I start sweating and my heart is beating fast and, and tears done came in my eyes a little bit. And, and it came to me that when we started reaching out to people way before you all even came to play, we was reaching out to all our so-called black leaders, Reverend Minks, Jesse Jackson, uh, the minister, and we reaching out to all these so-called black leaders. And everybody turned us down. Everybody. Uh, we was told that they're not lawyers, they're not activists, they're not this, they're not that. Everybody turned us down. So I, I'm looking at that picture, and I see all you women that whom we didn't know or was trying to know Standing out there with, with the signs in your hand, free Ronald Kitchen, free Aaron, Aaron Patterson, Stanley Howard. I'm seeing Stanley's father up there. I'm seeing you, my mom. And all these emotions just, just rush right back at me. Because it was a fight. Like Stanley said, when we came to try to form the death row 10, it was, it was heart-wrenching because half the time, half the, you know, half the guys back there was, was thinking that it was bull crap because as far as <clears throat> people being saying they tortured, now everybody's saying they tortured when they never mentioned it, mentioned it in trial, uh, uh, mentioned it in trial. Now it's coming out when we're trying to form the death row 10. So when, when we formed the death row tent and we actually start looking at the cases ourselves, you know, I, like I say, I was a lawyer, I was a prosecutor, I was a defendant, I was a guard, I was everything that one could possibly be when we had to mock trials on death row, trying to uh, um, put this this group together. Because before we was the death row 10, we was Aaron Patterson and the other guys. Y'all gave us faces and names when y'all put us out there. We was just the other guys. Other guys could be anybody. But when that pamphlet came out, and you see my big old pretty picture in that middle of that pamphlet, 
<laughs> there you go. You see me in the middle of that picture, and 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 it, it, like I say, and it just it brings back so much because all this work that we have done, a lot of guys have been freed. But one of the founders, the co-founder of the Death Row 10 is still locked up. He's still doing 37 years. So he, he and he's not the only one that's still in that place. We got many other guys, and we have to keep our foot on the ground and keep looking, moving forward, and keep shaking them trees so we can have more death row tens coming up. Uh more, I don't. It's 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 got to be like a hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of guys still in there. People want to just say hundred guys still left in there. No, because you shook a tree in the early two thousands and two thousand nine. Every time you shook a tree, two thousand nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, five or six guys was falling at that tree under the Burge Act. So that tells us we have to continue our fight. We have to. We have to keep moving forward. We have to get those strong individuals. We got to, we got to keep by Mark Clemson. Mark, Mark is that bulldog that we need. He, we need Mark. He's the bulldog. We need that bulldog, and we need that 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 quiet talking person, so it can it can balance out. If you can't talk to one, you can talk to the other. But sometimes you got to let that bulldog go and do what he do best. And then if that's what he do best to try to get that tree rattling. We have to use that. So Stanley was was like our bulldog as, as far as when it come down to the law when he was on death row. He studied, passed along, shared information. When we do the, when we did our laugh on death rows, he just didn't talk about Stanley Howard or Ronald Kitchen because it was always bigger than Stanley Howard and Ronald Kitchen. It was always bigger than the death row 10 guys. And as, and as you can see, and it done grew. It grew massive. It grew massive. And, and I remember when the lawyers was telling us that we shouldn't put our cases out there, you know. But my thing is, activists can't go in the courtroom and do what y'all do. So therefore, y'all can't go out there in the streets and do what they do. It has to work hand in hand for people to understand, to realize, and, and uh, to make things to make things happen. I believe that if you all, the campaign wasn't involved, the the Alice Kims, the Joan Parkins, the Marlene Martins, the Norings, um, uh, Julian. All these old people who I who who I came to love as my my uh, my my saviors on the street, as far as my mom and Aaron Patterson mom and Stanley Harris mom, his father, my nieces, my nephews, all these people went out there and they sacrificed their lives. So the lawyers not going to do what they did; they got to do work they managed in the courtroom. But if it wasn't for what was going on in the streets, I don't think we would have got this far, to tell you the truth. It would have never made it this far. I'd probably be still sitting on death row or not sitting on death row or sitting in the prisons still doing a life sentence because 
they figured that putting us out there like that was going to jeopardize their cases. And we proved them wrong. Thanks so much, Ronnie. I don't know if we'll have time to come back to you, but I want to kick it over to Kilroy um, to say a word uh, about the impact of the Death Row 10 organizing, because as Ronnie said, it extended beyond um, the Death Row 10. And um, your mom was one of the the fighters on on the outside. Um, I know that there are some other mamas um, here on this call too, and other family members who really were the heart and soul and the backbone um, of the movement. I wanna give a shout out to them. Christina Borisoff, Marielle Johnson, who we'll hear from later, Michelle Howard, Catherine McMillan, Armanda Shackleford, who we'll also hear from later. And then, you know, can you say a word about the ramifications of the Death Row 10 organizing and, um, you know, how, your mom and other moms were fighting alongside one another on the outside. And, you know, what we were talking on an earlier Zoom today about what it means, um, you know, the importance of people organizing on the outside to uplift, you know, people on the inside. Can you can you say a word about that, Kilroy? Yes, I could speak on that. And what's going on, Ron, my man? Great to see you again. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I was in Pontiac. Uh, as a young kid, when I noticed uh, a run on death row, and uh, clearly was not a death row inmate, and I didn't know the connection personally. I didn't have no relatives on death row, but I had childhood friends there, uh, and that, it, it became personal. So when I spoke to my mom uh, about activism, it was all in the interest of how could that really help you, Simon? And I was saying, well, what happened to those guys on death row is not an isolated incident. Uh, many of us African-Americans, uh, young boys, is language in prison with natural life, 800, 700 years, and 60 years. But it's all connected. It's all tied. And however, those who end up with the death penalty is that much more of an urgent call for assistance. And so we must team up to do what we could. Because in breaking that whole thing open, not only saved their lives, but it helped expose the pattern and practice of abuse of so many African-American boys and mans, uh, and obviously, Latanya say, young women. Uh, it was essential. And so a part of me wanted to become a law clerk and get in the law library is because uh, many of the death row inmates uh, sent majority of their petitions and they flyers and all they work up to the law library to be copied. They needed those copies and they needed that stuff back because it was very, very important they get that stuff out and network with organizers. And so often the law library was in very demand and paperwork would get piled to the back or get kicked to the curb. And so I made sure I worked on the inside doing work that probably wouldn't been noticed down the line 10, 20 years, but I knew it was important to saving their lives uh, because I grew up uh, with Ronnie Kitchen family and I attended his uh, game room many times with his little brother uh, who's deceased now. Uh, but I knew his sister and I used to see him and his family visit him when he was on death row. And so I knew then that uh, it was much more bigger than me. And I reminded that to my mom and my mom says she proudly held up his sign uh, in protest and the signs of, Stanley Howard and many other ones uh, as a reminder that these was her extended children. And so I 
I, I stood proud. I felt confident that we was doing what we could to support Death Row 10 as well as torture survivors. Thanks so much, Kilroy. Uh, grateful to you both um, for sharing those words and your insights. And we will pass it over back to Damon because um, I think we're going to hear from the mothers next. Thank you so much, Alice. Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Kilroy, uh, for helping us map out. Um, you know, I pulled out some really important notions of the relationship between organizing and institutional actors, also the, the gender dynamic of this carceral system and what resistance looks like. Um, so one of the things we've heard multiple times um, is that obviously it's not only young men, it's, it's young men and women uh, who have been experiencing this violence. Uh, but the resistance and the impact of this violence uh, goes be much beyond just young men and boys. And as we've seen and heard throughout uh, this evening, so much of the leadership um, has come from the mothers of the movement. Um, so as I am having the privilege of being able to organize more with the survivor-led community, the one thing that keeps coming up is that there's a real family dynamic. There's a real bond. Uh, and, and not only because of this bond from a trauma and working to heal together, but I think a significant part of this movement and our work is being held by the mothers that have been holding us down. Uh, and so we're going to invite two two women who are dynamite, who you know we all love and revere. Uh, Amanda Shackelford, the, the mother of uh, Gerald Reed. And then we're gonna have the one and only mother, Mary L. Johnson, mother of Michael Johnson and mother of us all uh, and leader of our movement. We bring him back, the one and only bulldog, Mr. Mark Clemens to moderate the conversation with, with our two, two loving mothers that we're so grateful to have here. Much love to y'all, I'ma pass it over to you, Mark. Um, hello. Uh, it is a privilege and it's an honor to have two uh, mothers of this struggle uh, on this panel. I would like to thank all torture survivors and especially the one woman that is on this Zoom, uh, Latanya Sublet, and all the men and women inside of our prisons, especially uh, Brother Javan Deloney. I am pleased to host this panel. My mother, Virginia Clemens, was my rock, my warrior and supporter. She fought for me like a dog. It was her dream that I would gain my freedom and be able to get involved to fight for others that were affected as the result of police tortures. She fought, she cried, she stood for me until she took her last breath. Yes, I am mad because justice remains to linger for as much as 100 plus men and women who must sit behind the walls of Illinois prisons while the criminal justice system as a whole plays local football with their lives. I can feel the presence of my mother as she whispers and says, Justice still has not been won. Not one Chicago police officer, prosecutor, nor judge has ever been held accountable for their actions. Yes, I am mad. If you are not mad, you have not been in that up with this nightmare that has affected over two African-American and Latin men and women. Finally, I just want to thank the Invisible Institute on the behalf of my mother, Virginia, 
the behalf of the men and men that are voiceless behind our prison walls, and to simply say thank you. Mary and Ender are warriors in the struggle for sons, and I'm happy to introduce them. Mothers of the movement, welcome Mary and Amanda. And I would like to first start off with Mary. And I would like to ask Mary, you have been involved with helping men and women for decades. I remember you from your visits at the Pontiac Correctional Center. How long have you been involved with fighting against injustice? I, let's see, I started out in the struggle when Dr. King was marching. And that's from that I went to um, Operation Breadbasket with Jesse Jackson. I was just concerned about the injustice that was going on in the world. And I had no idea that I was being treated unjust because I had internalized the whole system. I was born in Chicago, so I didn't see no signs in black and white. I thought I was feeling sorry for the people in the South. And if they wanted to be free and ride the bus with white folks, they should just move to Chicago. That's the way I felt about it. But then when my sons grew up to be teenagers, that's when I started getting little signs that something was wrong. Because I told my children, if you good, you know, you be respect these good people and officer friendly was one of them. But when they started going through their little trials and tribulations, I started looking at what was going on. And I saw the injustice. And my first contact with police, I didn't go because I was in trouble. I had never been to jail. I'd never been to court or anything. All I knew was Perry Mason <laughs> from watching television. I thought lawyers were good. And Colombo, he was a tech detective. He always got the wrong, wrong person. He always got the, the wrong person that was imitating the good person. He found out the right one, and that's why I love Perry Mason, so. But my experiences brought me to, to the police station. I went not as a, a victim of committing a crime, I went to complain. They jumped on my son and I went down there and filed a complaint. I thought I was gonna get an award because I was telling them about some bad cops. I had no idea that I had set my son up to be arrested every time they saw him. So I went through the system like that. I have had at least three breakdowns since my son been in there. I never shared that with anyone before. I just had to go in. I was on Prozac for years. And finally, I got off because I told them at the clinic, I say, I'm taking something to get rid of something that's natural. I got a reason to be sad. I have reason to be depressed. Now, this pill is supposed to make me not be depressed. I said, you can do that by helping me get my son out. I don't need no pill. I need some help. 
So my purpose started to be to try to get other people. I try to relate to people who it hasn't happened to yet. I try to relate to them in a way so they look at what happened to me. It can happen to anybody. You don't have to do anything. We make excuses for other people. They make mistakes. But when it comes to black people, we all commit crimes. It's a big difference. If you can help a child that's made a mistake, you can give them another chance. But with our children, you go to the penitentiary before you can even learn how to wash your hands. So I couldn't help my son. I got him in more trouble. The more I talked about it, the worse things got. So what I did, I say, well, what can I do? Because when I went out to talk about my son, I would start crying. I couldn't handle it. So I joined the Marion lockdown people. They was marching about the way people was treating prisons in Maryland with this water that was destroying their health. I got out and joined them. Then Seth Downley told me, he said, well, you should come on and join the coalition against the death penalty. I said, death penalty? Oh, what I'm going there for? I don't know nobody on death row. He said, but you'll learn a lot. It's some of the work you're doing. It's the same thing they need on death row. So I joined the coalition to end the death penalty. And I found that I could talk about them without breaking down. Every time I tried to talk about my son, I would break down. I'd start crying and people would feel sorry for me. I realized I didn't want pity. I, I didn't want sympathy. I wanted empathy. I wanted them to care enough to get involved in this fight. So I started going to death row. And I had no idea when I went to death row that time that I was going to be going every month after that. I saw a need for me. When the guys looked up and they saw me, they saw somebody that reminded them of their mother, their neighbor, or their aunt, or their sister. And they told me, they said, we don't want to talk to these other people. Say, that's who put us here. The judge was white. The jury was white. The prosecutor was white. So they were so glad to see me and be able to talk to me till I started going every month. I went every month because there was a need. And I started to organize. And I told them, when I come and visit you all, this is a break for me. But my real work is when I leave here, because I go in churches, I go in schools. I talk about what's happening to you all, and that gets people involved. So that's, that's how my work started. I started going in the institutions. Aaron Patterson said when he looked up and saw us on television with Citizens Alert, Mary Powell's organization, he said that's when he learned who had tortured him because he saw John Burge. He, he said, I didn't even know his name. He's told Ms. Patterson, go to Citizens Alert and talk to Mary Powell's and we can get some help. So that's how the fight started. When I went to death row, they said, you're going to go back and talk to Aaron Pat. I said, why I got to go back there? I said, that's the worst part of the penitentiary where he is. They said, because Aaron can't nobody talk to him. 
he needs to know that we have to be able to talk to him in order to help him. So I went to talk to Aaron. And I told him, I said, if you want people to help you, you got to learn to be cool enough to talk to them. You can't be throwing stuff at them every time they come back here. So that's how Aaron Patterson started mm -hmm. getting help. And the Death Row 10, the name, Alice know her name. I think her name was the one of the friends I met with the Death Row 10. It wasn't the Death Row 10 then. She went in with me, Mar Marlene, uh, and she wanted to know. Marlene Martin? Yeah, she wanted to know all. She wanted me to introduce her to the guys who were all torture victims. So I did that. And she went around and formed the Death Row 10 with those guys. So it's just been on and on. Mm -hmm. You know, I learned one thing. Whatever you want from this system, you better fight for it. And the best way to fight is get right. other people. Get other people to listen to you, and you'll be all right. Because if you're the victim, they think you're all guilty. And nobody going to listen to you because they figure you should be in jail yourself. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's all. It's just keeping up. Keep going. That's all. And one thing that I want to bring up, is, and this, this is to Amanda. How are you, Amanda? Amanda is the mother of Gerald Reed. And as a mother that has stood for her son, Mr. Gerald Reed, who was tortured in 1990, what gives you strength to carry on, Amanda? First, I want to say thank you for inviting me. And I'm very appreciative of the invitation. But what keeps me going is to know one thing. He's coming out. And it's not just going to be Gerald Reed. It's going to be all the men and women that are wrongfully convicted. Because that's who I'm fighting for. I was thinking yesterday, yesterday was Valentine's Day. And it, it was a year ago on Valentine's Day when the horrible judge reversed the, 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 the former judge's decision and sent Gerald Reed back to prison to finish his natural life sentence. Now, the former judge overturned his conviction because the only thing they had was the signed statement that they tortured Gerald into signing. So I thought about that on yesterday and it hurt to know that you, did, you keep doing this and they don't they don't listen as the judges and the prosecutors they don't care about our family they're not concerned about our family because they're where they want them to be now on the day when the former judge made his decision he asked, he had asked them on the 19th of December, 2000, 
18. He said, he, he said, on the 21st, I will make my decision. And if the lawyers don't agree, you can uh, file an appeal. So the 21st came, he made his decision, asked the lawyers, did they agree? Robin Milan had never been directly on Gerald's case at the table until that day. And he stood up and said, yes, we want to file an appeal because we want a new trial. And it just went back. Now, that judge retired the end of December. And it was put in the hands of a new judge. And that judge is not nice. Him and the prosecutor once worked together in the state's attorney's office. And they just went back and forth. Every court date, it was something different that the judge needed. And that continued. So last year, on the 14th of February, Judge Gaynor, no, Judge Henley, I'm sorry, his decision was not to let Gerald Reed a new trial. Gerald Reed went back to prison. What I can't understand that has me confused is the prosecutor claimed he had evidence to prove that Gerald Reed did these crimes. But now, you know this man, and as far as you're concerned, is guilty. But why are you making him plea deals? And he made him a plea deal in December, the same month that the same month before um, in 2019. The plea deal consisted of jury agreeing to let him meet with him and talk with him without the presence of his lawyers. Then if you do that, we wanted to know if you plead guilty to one murder, we'll give you time served for the other. But now he's guilty as far as you're concerned. So why you want to make him an offer like this? And when he turned down, he had he had, had about four plea deals. When he turned down that one, that was their decision. Send him back to prison. Yes, and Amanda, one thing that I want to say is that uh, this panel section, uh, we are uh, about out of time, and I'm going to just say this. I know that you are all appreciative 
And I know that your sons are appreciative. Harry Johnson's son being Michael Johnson, uh, Brother Paradise, and Brother Gerald Reed. Uh, and as I said, my section of panel, we are at time, but the bottom line of it is we will keep fighting. We will keep fighting. And I salute all the mothers in the movement for hard work. They're dedicated by the head at night for people like Lee Kitchen's mother and all of these names that were mentioned. I would be so incarcerated. I love all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this. I'm grateful. Yes. Thank you, Miss Armanda and, and, and Mother Mary. We, we, we are so grateful, um, not only for your the lifetime of work and dedication, uh, but also your, your vulnerability in sharing your story with us um, to, to display both that balance of pain and hurt um, that, that none of us can understand, but also your fortitude and your consistency and your diligence, not only for your own sons, uh, but for, for all of the, 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 the people, the children, the the those who have been harmed and the lives and the families that have been destroyed, the way that you have been there to show up for them, uh, that work has been seen and it motivates us all. So, so we honor you, we thank you. And every day that we show up, we, we, are, we are trying our best to continue your legacy, but we obviously fall short because we, we pale in comparison, but thank you so much. And to all of the other mothers um, and to all the survivors that are here, we honor your mother and your family members. Um, and so with that, before we get to our closing and call to action, uh, we want to do a quick little Zoom thing. Uh, so if all survivors who are still on the call, and we can we can ask the mothers too, all the survivors and mothers on the call, if you could put your screen on for a second, and we're going to be able to see you all, we want to get a screenshot so that we can document this day and document your, your image. Um, it's not every day that we're able to get everybody together like this. Um, so folks can, can hop on their screen uh, real quick for just a quick, we're going to take a shot of the, of the, the computer. Uh, and then we go, we gonna move you, on and close. What and do you say, dude? Did you hear you? You good, my Mary? You on? So you just stay there oh, for I'm a second, on. and we gonna take a picture. Yep, appreciate you. <laughs> so any other survivors who are still on, um, and Miss Amanda as well, we we invite you to put your camera on, and uh, either Myra or maybe Michelle is gonna get a screenshot. So let me go to my gallery, and so maybe all folks who are not a survivor, maybe you turn your camera off. That might actually help. Um, just so that we can we can sort through this real quick before our closing, because we just want to capture this if we can. You want to do a smile on three? You want to give them a countdown? Three, two, one, smile. All right, I think I got everybody who had their videos on. Great. We 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 thank you. We thank all survivors and organizers who helped make this event possible and who showed up tonight. Uh, but but real quick, I just want to say something before we get a, a few calls to action uh, as we leave. Um, you know, as we are talking about justice in this world and in this country, and as we are in this tumultuous political climate on a national and local level, uh, I want to name this this history of torture and violence not as some reckless activity of some some isolated evil white men, uh, but a part central to the structure of white supremacy and the language of fascism that we are starting to engage with much more seriousness in our in our society. Fascism is not 
QAnon theories and the Proud Boys and Trump tweets, even though they might be aligned and a part of it. Fascism is when the state uses its power such as, as this um, to oppress people through violence and domination and the destruction of any type of possibility of democracy. And we cannot have a democracy when our systems of justice are designed around torturing people to get punishment for political capital. Um, that, is, that is what sustains our, our system of governance and that is fascism. So even though liberal democracy is cooperating with fascism, we need to name it as such. And so for those folks who are interested in fighting against fascism, supporting this movement locally and nationally uh, is what we can do. And so just a few, few calls to action. Uh, so one, uh, anytime you hear anything from Armanda, the Chicago Torture Justice Center, or CFIST and, and the Alliance around work to free them all, around work to Gerald Reed, please, please show up. As you've heard through this multi-decade story, is that we need to mobilize in the street to support those that are moving with inside the institutions. So free them all. We, we need to show up for Gerald Reed, Stanley Howard, Timon Russell, the Hernandez brothers, and the list goes on. Um, there will be a link in the chat. The link has gone on um, to please sign the petition to sign up for the memorial. Uh, I mean, to sign, to continue the memorial. The city has not uphold its commitment. Uh, so we need to take the formal route, uh, but also for all you activists and organizers out there, uh, the time is now. The time is to also bring that pressure from the street. So y'all do your planning how you want, uh, but we're gonna need potentially some 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 direct active directly active spirit i will call it that um to make sure that this this commitment is uphold we need this memorial and for folks who want to support survivors immediately the chicago torture justice center is operating a survivor relief fund for covid19 that link is also in the chat um so so please please uh follow up and then also uh reginald and i, I believe sean have upcoming court dates is there a date reginald sean you want to throw into the chat um, that you need support of people to mobilize around, because um, this has been a need that survivor mem survivors have been naming, um, is that we, we cannot lay up and everyone needs the, the support uh, of the names that we recognize. So Sean or Reginald, do you have a, a date real quick before we hop off? March 23rd, March 23rd, um, to support Reginald Henderson. And I believe that that will be in accordance with his brother, Sean Tyler. Um, and, and they are some of the folks who have just been returning home the most recently. Um, and so we want to make sure we support them. You can follow the Chicago Torture Justice Center's um, CTJC social media, and we'll give you more details from March 23rd. But we need to everyone remember the name Reginald Henderson and remember the name Sean Tyler. Uh, they need our support uh, as as we see, the state is still collaborating and still upholding um, th this legacy of torture. As we heard uh, um, Mama Armanda say, uh, Prosecutor Milan and his uh, conflicts of interest is still continuing this fascist regime of torture that is destroying Black communities um, and, and, and at the root of our oppression in many ways. So we're going to close out here. Again, sign the petition for the memorial. Please, if you can, contribute to the Chicago Torture Justice Center Fund uh, and keep doing the work. We have a lot to do, but there's so much more. Uh, was that announcement? Go ahead, somebody. I can't hear. No, I just said I just wanted to thank everyone for participating. Those who have a question, uh, the situation and those who have a question, uh, you know, us. I just uh, appreciate the moment to just get on and, and, and recognize and listen to us and allow us to get into your lives and, and finally hear us. So thank you all. All right, it's eight o'clock. So there will be follow-ups. This work is not over. This is not a one-time event, but this night was special and unique. Um, and so we're gonna remember it all and we remember your stories. Uh, thank you all so much for coming out. 
And with that being said, I see more names being shout out. Johnny Plummer, Antonio Nicholas. Uh, keep throwing them in the chat. Free them all. I'm going to hop off. Much love to the people. Peace out.